Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers, episode 18, The Namesake. I'm Scatty, we have with us Brooke and Matt. Bonjour. Hello. <laughs> and we will be diving into A Clash of Kings tonight for the first time, we're very excited. And uh, that means we'll be kicking off with the prologue, all these books start with a prologue, as well as Arya 1, Sansa 1, Tyrion 1, and Bran 1. All of them first, POVs of course. That's uh, chapters 1 through 4 for Clash of Kings, according to the Wiki of Ice and Fire. Uh, quick reminder, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast, as always. At the end of the podcast, we'll do a special segment that we call Davos After Dark. Don't worry, we will warn you with a nice musical jingle. And uh, at that point, if you don't want spoilers, just turn it off and turn it off quick. So, uh, if you want to contact us, we got a lot of great feedback after the uh, the two uh, the Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger twin episodes. It's been a lot of fun uh, reading and interacting with you guys. So, uh, keep it up. Uh, you can reach us through... DavosFingers.com, uh, that's our Tumblr site. Uh, email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or find us and like us on Facebook. And uh, also, we're, we are on iTunes, as always. So, we wanted to drop in a, a couple notes uh, before we got started, just some general notes. First, uh, this is the first recording we've had uh, since the passing of Leonard Nimoy. So, we thought, uh, you know, we wouldn't be proper sci-fi geeks if we didn't say goodbye and thanks to Leonard for uh, all of his contributions. Uh, he is a legend in the field, and it has personally inspired me to do a front-to-back watching of Star Trek, the uh, original series, which I have never seen before. So I'm excited to that. I'm, I'm three episodes in now. And, yes, uh, live long and prosper. <laughs> live long and prosper. And also, just a, a quick reminder, if you guys don't, never watched Fringe, it was a Fox series, pretty good sci-fi maybe less science sometimes than others uh but uh he had a turn there and, and uh did a good job as well as a character called william bell and uh we certainly will miss leonard Nimoy. he had uh intense gravitas and uh we missed so uh note number two uh if you were listening on release day that's uh march 16th then you are mere hours away from matt and scat attending a kevin smith appearance at wise guys in salt lake city we're going to be at the 9.30 p.m. show while Brooke fumes in jealousy up north. And uh, we will be in our black Davos Fingers t-shirts. If uh, any of you guys are there, uh, look us up. Just stop by and say hello. We'll uh, go, love to, to chat with you for a few minutes. To clarify, there is no jealousy. What? Kevin Smith as a person is a repulsive <laughs> windbag. I would never want to see him live. And I would like to remind our listeners that both Scad and Matt decided that it was too expensive to be in a sandwich between the two actors who play Cersei and Jamie Lannister, but thought it was okay to spring for Kevin Smith tickets. So <laughs> Kevin Smith we gotta tickets. have our priorities. <laughs> Kevin Smith tickets, thirty-five dollars. Sandwich between Cersei and Jamie, one hundred and eighty, was it? I think it something was. like that for one Priceless. picture. Priceless. <laughs> oh, is right. Uh, when I spontaneously vomit tomorrow night for no reason whatsoever, I'll suddenly remember it's because Kevin Smith is before people I love. <laughs> and we're 16th. eating up every word he says. Yeah, we're huh? gonna love it. I'm I'm composing my question for him now. If I get the chance to write to to ask one. Lastly, uh, and uh, very personally for me, the the other fingers have graciously allowed me to uh, selfishly pitch something that's very close to my heart. Uh, if you know and love the phrase truly outrageous, you may be reminded of the 90s cartoon Gem and the Holograms. Well, 
comic book giant IDW is releasing a comic book version uh, based, loosely based at least on that original cartoon, uh, reimagined, uh, made more modern, a bit more accessible to uh, different audiences. Why is it close to my heart? Uh, while I did occasionally watch Gem and the Holograms as a young one, it's uh, it's actually my sister. You may have heard of her, uh, or you may have heard me mention her on this podcast in the past. She's a writer. She self-published two books. She's got columns all over the internet, and she's just generally awesome. But she, anyway, she's been given the lead writing gig on this comic. And so, if it interests you at all, go check out Gem and the Holograms. It releases March 25th. So wherever you buy comics, check it out if you're interested. I'm super proud of her and uh, just so stoked for this thing to come on. So Yeah, super pumped for this. Gem and the Holograms is so formative for me. Oh my goodness. And the doll with the light-up earrings and everything. Well, then we'll, we know wow. she'll sell at least one issue. Else, yeah, she will. <laughs> uh, Brooke and... had her gem and we had Kevin Smith. <laughs> <laughs> about a decade and look later. look how we all turned out. Yeah, right. Look at us. Yeah. So, uh, any any other notes from you guys before we kick off the episode? No, let's do it. So uh, I'm I'm actually kicking this off this time. So uh, more of more of my lovely dulcet tones coming your way. I'm doing this. Uh, I'm covering the prologue a little bit differently than normal. This prologue, guys, it bounces around so much. Uh, I refer to it as the circuitous ramblings of an 80 year old <laughs> with some sort of attention deficit disorder. Um, <laughs> And it's I, like its own book. It My is. Heavens. It's crazy. So it's it's twenty seven, I think, pages, and uh, it just bounces around everywhere. Just his thoughts are everywhere in this thing. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna start by introducing the location and the new characters. There's a lot of them uh, that you meet in this in this prologue, and then just kind of a brief rundown of of the the key points of, of what happens. So bear with me. It's a little bit different than we normally do it, but. I think it was kind of the only way to march through this thing with any sense. So, uh, without further ado, we are on Dragonstone. Dragonstone is the westernmost point of the old Freehold of Valyria, and previous home to the only real family to survive the doom of Valyria, the Targaryens. Um, Danny uh, is is a Targaryen. It's shaped uh, by it's it's basically shaped black rock, um, kind of almost seemingly magically shaped. Uh, dragons and gargoyles adorn it everywhere. It it also sits astride Sakansus Mapas. It sits astride the gullet, which is kind of the only way in and out of King's Landing by sea. So it's kind of got an effective position in uh, in blockading King's Landing if if you wanted to do so. And it's it's pretty close also. All that stuff about the Doom of Valyria. If you guys are interested, uh, again we've recommended this book a bunch of times. But uh, uh, World of Ice and Fire uh, has tons of stuff on that. So uh, check it out if you're interested. Uh, we should get paid for saying that. Anyway, uh, so characters. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Everyone's on board for that. Money, money, money. <laughs> we should get paid for a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, your nightlife aside, let's uh, let's move on. So, <laughs> I'm not the one with the porn name. <laughs> uh, true enough. Uh, the Whispering Wood will move on. Uh, Maester Cresson. First person we meet, he's old, like creaky joints old. He can barely get up the get get up and down the stairs old. Uh, he's been the maester for House Baratheon since Stephen Baratheon, Triple B's father, ran the house. He saw the birth of all three boys. He's been loyal to House Baratheon beyond all measure, but he knows that his time is coming to an end, and he can see his influence with Stannis waning as well. Um, 
he his replacement that's been sent by uh, the Guild of Maesters, uh, Maester Pylos. He's uh, so recently sent by the Citadel to replace him. He's cautious, careful, very serious. He's in his early 20s, very dutiful. We don't get much more about him. Uh, Shireen, she is the daughter, uh, the only child, of the rightful king of Westeros. She's 10 with grayscale, um, which is a, a normally fatal disease that kind of covers you in a almost like a rock-like rough texture over parts of your body. So she's, she's kind of unfortunate looking, and without other children around to play with, she's adopted as her friend a jingly, motley fool uh, named Patchface. So this dude, Patchface, was formerly a jester. His, like I said, his face is tattooed in motley, uh, so he's got like basically checkered, checkered paint on his face. He's brought across the narrow sea uh, in hopes of pleasing young Triple B and teaching Stannis how to laugh. More on that in a minute. He was lost in Shipbreaker Bay, which is uh, the, the bay around Storm's End, where, where the Baratheons hail from. Uh, he was lost there for three days in the same shipwreck that drowned Stefan Baratheon, their father. Uh, but he washed ashore three days later, like I said, a shell of the man he once was. He now wears a tin can with antlers affixed and sings meaningless jingles. Or are they? Uh, he also sh- kind of shuffles about uh, on his feet in a kind of a weird gait. Kind of a just kind of a weird guy. Doesn't seem to be all there, but uh, Shireen adores him. Next we have Davos. Davos is an upjumped commoner. He's now a lord due to helping Stannis, Stannis and his men survive a siege in Storm's End by bringing onions and fish in the dark of night. He's missing the tips down to the last joint of the fingers on his left hand as punishment for his years of smuggling. He's direct, honest, loyal, with a bit of humor. He is the namesake. I love him, and I hope you will, too. Uh, Guess what, guys? It's official. The name of our podcast is no longer a spoiler. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) We've been lying for 17 episodes about having no spoilers. We love Davos. We do love Davos. Uh, I thought about that once. It's like people who are reading the books for the first time are like, what the, where the heck did they get this guy, their name? Like, who is Davos Fingers? Hopefully they were curious enough to Google search and then stop after the first couple lines. All right, so we we next meet Stannis. Uh, According to the laws of Westeros, he is the one true king of Westeros. He doesn't stand all these pretenders uh, that are claiming to be the king. He's stern. uh, He's a stern, teeth-grinding, humorless man. He's dutiful and all about what is quote-unquote right, you know, what he perceives to be right. He listens to everyone but makes his own calls. He's a very, uh, you know, kind of very independent guy that way. Uh, Solis, his wife, she hails from the Reach, where the Tyrells hold sway. She's unattractive, similarly unwavering as Stannis is. Their marriage is loveless but dutiful, and she is a new recruit of the Red God, Roar. How do you guys say that? Upper pronunciation. I say it just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Real, real guttural. Roar. I say roar. I say roar. Roar. Okay. So. One of the few pronunciations we agree on. Yeah. Excellent. Melisander, speaking of the red god Rolor. Melisander is the priest, is a priestess of the red god. She seems magical. She's stunning. She's a kind of a stunning red everywhere, dress, hair, kind of lipstick everywhere, against pale, creamy white skin. She has immense influence on Solis and increasing influence on Stannis. So, there's your cast of characters. Sorry it took so long. 
Now moving on to the action. So, Maester Crescent and the gargoyles of Dragonstone watch the sky as the comet blazes its red tail. Uh, a white raven has arrived to declare the end of summer. A long summer of ten years, the longest in recent memory. Pylos informs Crescent uh, that Davos has come back, and the two of them make their way across Dragonstone to meet with Davos and the king, in quotation marks. He's one of many declared kings at this point. Davos tells us that Stannis does not have the support of the Stormlords, support he should have been owed if Robert had allowed him his birthright of Storm's End. Uh, Stannis is evaluating kind of if he can seize the crown, so he sent Davos out to kind of talk to all these Stormlords to see if he could, if the, he'd have their support so he could seize the crown for himself from the pretender, Joffrey Lannister. Note that I don't call him Joffrey Baratheon. But Davos has informed him that he doesn't have the numbers. Uh, he's angered by his brother's betrayal, uh, who, if you remember, has declared himself king and uh, grabbed the Stormlord support for himself. And he's annoyed by the Starks as well that split his kingdom in two, and so he refuses to treat with either. Crescent makes some suggestions to try to, uh, to, try to help out. Uh, he suggests that they foster Shireen with the Aarons of the Vale. Um, that's, uh, you may remember Lysa Aaron with her, her young child, Robert, um, suggesting they send Shireen to the, the Aarons to, uh, make, make some allies. Stannis is about to relent on that point when Selyse shows up and refutes it as an option. She also presents her own option, kill the traitor Renly, his brother, and embrace the Lord of Light, Rolor, clearly heavily influenced by Melisander. Crescent, Maester Crescent is aghast at these recommendations. He returns to his room and resolves to stop Melisander by any means necessary, specifically murdering her through poison. The weapon of Cravens, Eunuchs, and what, Brooke? Women. Women. He needs to get his strength <laughs> as to not fumble in the attempt of poisoning, uh, poisoning her cup. So he takes a nap, but he oversleeps. So he wakes up in the middle of the feast, has to make his own way over there on his feebly knees. Uh, and when he arrives, he's made a mockery of when Patchface bungles into him. And is even turned on, not turned on, but, uh, well, the man he has served turns on him <laughs> and makes him wear Patchface's helm in a, a, a show of complete disrespect. He tries one last time to get Stannis to listen to him, but is brutally rebuffed. So he and Melisander toast the fire god with a goblet of wine and poison. Melisander exerts her power and lives. Crescent sinks to his knees and dies. And that is the end of the chapter. And boy, was it a beast. That was a lot of talking. Yeah. So, 27 pages worth of talking. So It's a good chapter, though. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, well, I was, that, that's actually exactly where I was going to go. It's, it's like masterfully written. You're reading it, and you're just like, he's just going through all these different things. It's 27 pages, but the amount of stuff he crams in there is, is immense. In a way that doesn't make you feel like you're trudging through like a textbook or something. It's very natural, and it feels like the as you as you put it, Scott. This this weird rambling thoughts of a very old man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but also like very emotional because he has raised Stannis and now sees him completely, you know, betray that loyalty and that connection and sort of like oh god is that what all of our lives are going to be like when we get so old and also it just shows how ageist so many of the characters are yeah and uh yeah it was a lot and also 
also is a great introduction to Melisandre and and just how much she should not be underestimated. Yes, absolutely. And I I wanted to uh, on your point about about the emotion. There's a little passage. It's it's really short. I wanted to read it real quick. I know you probably have all heard enough of my voice, but it'll be quick. So it's it's about the emotion that you're referring to, Brooke. Maester Crescent blinked, and these are his thoughts now. Stannis, my lord, my sad, sullen boy, son I never had, you must not do this. Don't you know how I have cared for you, lived for you, loved you despite all? Yes, loved you, better than Robert even, or Renly, for you were the one unloved, the one who needed me most. It's just... I wrote I wrote down just as I was reading that's that's got to be I am a parent but I'm my my kids aren't old enough yet but I would think that's got to be how parents feel when their kids are growing apart it's yeah, heart-wrenching it. oh and then when you know Stannis ha- concedes to for, for Crescent to put on the the jingle bell hat and stuff like that it's just like oh twisting your heart around yeah. and just... yeah that was a weird bit I as, when when they did it was that, so I, weird. I was sure Stannis was gonna be like, "No, don't. That's too far." And but he allows it. And then after that, she's like, "Oh, yeah. you've got to sing all of your speeches now." And he's like, "That's too far." No, really? that's too much. That's <laughs> putting, too much. Putting on the clanking who... tin can hat is isn't too far, but making him sing right. his lines is. Yeah. Where? What's yeah, exactly. the line? Yeah. It makes you think that maybe Stannis isn't completely in his right mind. At least that's what it made me think. Yeah, agreed. And and obviously, I think Stannis was trying to make a point of of blocking Creston out, like fully and completely, completely. Um, oh, what's the word? Um, discrediting him. Yeah. In front of everyone, so that just cut that connection cleanly. But yeah. um, it was also a good opportunity to see how Davos reacted and give us an even deeper look into his I don't know, peasant nobility because he was the only one who had pity in his eyes he's the only one who you know invited crescent to sit with him like was the only rational person during that whole scene i love that term peasant nobility is that did you invent that or is that something i just don't know um well it just came to me yeah let's let's call it invention well (laughs) done like, like most things i say it's something that i've like absorbed from another source and then taken credit for later all right. <laughs> without remembering what the source was all right all right all right yep it's yours nobility thanks guys it's yours yeah. i like it part of me wonders how it would be like if uh we were seeing this from another pov crescent feels very picked on and perhaps rightfully so uh, but i wonder you know how would this be different if this were coming from stannis like maybe is he just trying to like cut crescent out because he knows crap's about to go down crescent to not have to be a part of it so he's trying to like cut him out of everything and kind of let him retire and in peace or something i don't know but it it, the the pov of crescent really shapes our understanding of these people you know melisandre comes off as a villain uh stannis comes off as very resentful and i think he is um but it would be interesting to see this this same scene from someone else Good point. Oh, we to give Stannis a lot of credit that he probably doesn't deserve. All right. Everybody's no, all like, not. Stannis is so great, he's so funny and dry, but this particular chapter, our first real introduction to him, must have formed my initial impression because he is whiny. He is super oh my whiny. Gosh. Oh. Get over it, buddy. Get <laughs> yeah, over right. it. 
I know you wanted Storm's End, but you didn't get it. It was a long time ago. Robert was so mean get to me. over it. He really did kind of get shafted, though, didn't he? Like He got shafted. He comes off a little bit, yeah, a little bit, uh, a little bit whiny, maybe. I just think he's... Come on, a lot whiny. I don't know. I, I think... I think he I think he appears whiny because you don't know him yet. As as you get to know him, I don't know, this isn't really a spoiler, I don't think, but you realize he's just speaking the truth all the time. Like, mm-hmm. he just speaks very plainly. And so it's less whining and just, this is actually how it is. I, I don't think he's ever really looking for pity. He's just stating how things are. I think he is very good at being blunt like that, but also it just seems like he's so stuck in the past that maybe it's starting to affect his decision-making in the future. Like, he absolutely refuses to treat with Renly over things, and he absolutely refuses to do this and this and this and this, and it all harkens back to, oh, Robert gave, you know, our lands to little brother instead of me and i get that i would be upset over that too if if my my lance major holdings went to me but it was it seems like it's starting to affect i disagree though i don't think that's affecting his decision making at all i think he is hurt by it but his decision his decision not to treat with renly is not at all to do with the storm lords taking his side or him having the uh, inheritance and complete with completely with the fact that renly's not right he is not the heir it is my. It is mine, by law. I don't think. I wonder I don't if he'd th- be willing to talk is things out. I don't know. I guess it's speculation, but I think it. I think it is tainting things a little bit. Well, so many. So much of his circumstances are a result of his his Fast. like yeah. stanisiness, right? <laughs> his stubborn stubbornness, his his inability to try and be charming, or I guess yeah, an unblunt all the time. Yeah. So he, he definitely doesn't play and, the game. And and here's the thing, and you've brought this up before, Scott, the whole um, frog and the scorpion thing. Like, Crescent, of all people, should know Stannis' nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that he was surprised when, you know, he was humiliated in front of the entire banquet, I think that should give us a clue that Stannis has been unduly influenced by Melisandre and all of these building resentments and... You know, sitting on his on his grievances for years and years, that Crescent was surprised and hurt and 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 but felt betrayed, probably says that Stannis is actually fearing a wager, or it proves the point that Stannis is just mean and blunt and and won't even extend uh, empathy and sympathy for an old man who once loved him. Yeah, I. I, I I don't know I I'm I I'm on the fence a little bit like it feels like he was gonna listen at least on the one point of of sending uh, Shireen over to the errands before somebody yeah, else came yeah. in and gave him other advice like I think he will listen but I think that last ditch effort from Cresson at the feast where he's like hey just one last time maybe you should sit down like no there's no way that was gonna happen like he's not gonna bend now you should know him well enough. But it, I don't. I think he does listen to people. Yeah. But uh... and he does have he does have some good qualities. We're kind of ragging on him a little bit, but I don't think anyone with any other personality could have done what he did for Robert during Robert's rebellion. Uh, you know, holding Storm's End under siege as it was under siege and holding it for how long was it? Over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were down to eating. What were they eating? Like rats and stuff. And um, you know, he he that stubborn blunt not being in 
and type of personality is is very much probably a major contributor to him being able to hold out as long as he did. So Stannis, yeah. uh, he has done an awful lot, and 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 his his qualities are valuable. He's yeah. he's very uncompromising, which I think is part of the the trait you're talking about to be able to keep Storm's End like that. But I did find it interesting that he, while he's completely uncompromising and willing to be a, to, to to treat with Renly or the Starks, he's com- apparently completely willing to compromise his religion and his faith for this new, completely new belief structure. Like it doesn't seem to bother him at all to compromise that. What do you guys think of that? Is that uh, is that kind of uh, kind of contradictory? Uh, yeah, I think we have to wait to learn more about what this whole R'hllor business is because I mean, we get a firsthand example of Melisandre being powerful and resisting poison and being supernaturally beautiful, I guess, would be like some sort of show of her power. Yeah. But uh, I, think, I think we have to learn more to see what has persuaded Stannis. Yeah. Or is persuading him. And that's one of the most interesting things to me about this this whole situation is you see this unyielding, uncompromising, by-the-book type guy, and all of a sudden he's buying into this magic show? It seems very weird. I can't learn more about why what Melisandre was Stannis in the first place, uh, why she came to him, why he kept her around. Uh, all of those are very interesting and intriguing questions. Mm-hmm. You said it better than I did, Matt. Thank you. I only have one more thing I really wanted to, to, to talk about before we move on, because we've been on this for a while. Maesters in general, like, I, I think that Brooke might just tell me that we need to wait and learn more still, but why do they do what they do? Like, what is their motivation? Cause, because we, we see in Crescent something that I, he feels a lot more emotionally attached than any of the Maesters we've seen before. Lewin seems a little bit that way too, but Crescent is, like, it seems to me like he's forgotten any sort of political neutrality he is all in with stannis and loves him like a son and and all that like i think i think the citadel would look down on that but but what is their motivation like what what do they want him to be doing in that situation well he often refers to counseling stannis and we have decided in the past that the maesters are the wikipedia of westeros (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i guess just being a font of wisdom that stannis can turn to and probably has in the past and maesters, of course, learn multiple disciplines. That's what the links in their chain represent. So they do have, you know, legit knowledge. Um, I think that they're just there to help people make the right decisions. But, you know, bringing this up, there might be like a deeper, darker motivation for spreading maesters all over the land. I mean, that's a pretty good network to have. It's kind of hydra-like. Yeah, very hydra-like. An old and town that... conspiracy. Good point. And, you know, mm. I, I'm not trolling here either. I, I, I don't know the answers to those questions, but it just seems like, gosh, um, there's a movie I love called Vanilla Sky. I'm not a big Tom Cruise guy, but Jason Lee's in it, and we all know, along with Kevin Smith. Um, and the, there's a quote at the very beginning of, of that film that's, that says, what's the answer to 99 out of 100 questions? Money. My father wrote about this in his book. Chapter 1, page 1. Paragraph one. What is the answer to 99 out of 100 questions? Money. And, mm-hmm. and 
I just, whenever I look at an organization like this that seems so, oh, just send them around to give good advice. Like, help everyone out, help the world. I'm just kind of like, what's in it for them? And I, I realize I'm just a skeptic and an asshole and everything and, and a negative guy, but, like, I just feel like there's got to be something there. What's their motivation? Anyway, I don't know. Just something to good dangle to out there for the future. Yeah, I'd definitely yeah. Been, be into, like, checking out if somebody's actually delved into that and done an essay or something. If not, this might be the first thing we can write about that hasn't been written about. <laughs> I, I I think I've seen reference to, to deeper musings about the Macers, but I haven't read anything in, thoroughly or anything. Not anything this, yeah, anything this overarching, yeah. Mm. It doesn't mean it's not out there. Don't want to discount anyone. Just, I haven't seen mm. it. I'm not, mm. I'm not, I haven't read that in trolling and pretending or anything here. Um, but anyway. Okay, well let's let's move on. Uh, unless you guys have anything you want to add on on the prologue. Nope. Welcome to the land of many new nope. characters. All right. Uh, nope, let's, good job. Let's move on to Arya. Uh, Brooke, I think that's you. Arya, horse face, underfoot, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, underfoot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Okay, so this is lovely and short in comparison. <laughs> It was like yeah. five pages. <laughs> Thank you, Scad, for giving me Arya. Um, so last we saw of Arya, she had been grabbed by Yorin at her father's beheading, called a boy, and had her hair chopped off with a knife. And she is still with Yorin, still disguised as a boy, and headed up the King's Road towards the wall with a gaggle of new Night's Watch recruits. These are thieves and poachers and rapers and worse, gleaned from the Red Keep dungeons, as well as two orphan boys Yorn persuaded in coming along who are making her life, or rather the gutter rat Ari's life, miserable. So one is lame Lamy Green Hands because his hands and arms are dyed green from being a fabric dyer's apprentice, and the other one is called Hot Pie because his mother had been a baker, and he'd yelled Hot Pies in the street, presumably like a golden era paperboy. Uh, this kid is a real gem. He'd actually kicked another kid in the balls to death before joining the watch. And it's actually, so he claims. well, he was pretty descriptive. So I'm going to believe him on this one. If okay. I recall correctly, the ball sack had broken open cock turned black. I just have my Which doubt. I really yeah, enjoy just saying out happen. loud now. Um, it's actually pretty gratifying when he pushes her too far, um, trying to steal needle and she soundly beats him with her practice sword, like just really lets her aggression out so thoroughly that hot pie shits himself. So unsurprisingly, Yorin does not tolerate dissent in his ranks and takes her into the woods to switch her bare ass with a stick until she's bloody and can't ride her mule for three days. But while they're alone, we learn that Yorin was at Ned Stark's beheading because he was there to pick Ned up and take him to the wall. So someone had brought Yorn a boy, a purse of coin, and a message and instructions to take Ned away after Ned's traitor confession. So um, it isn't stated outright, but we can put the puzzle pieces together here and say that the boy is likely the bull, who is another orphan riding along with the group, who is older, large, and muscled, and who obsessively shines his bull-horned helm. 
And the bull, quite likely, is the large, muscled, young apprentice blacksmith that we met in Game of Thrones when Ned went hunting for clues to John Aaron's murder and offered to buy a helm matching the same description off of him. So, like, I'm not going to play coy with you guys or with our listeners. The clues are all there to tell us that the bull is Gendry, King Robert's bastard. And now the question is, who brought Gendry to Yorin? And... In my mind, there are two candidates, and can you guys list them? I, I don't know if I can list them, but your description of Gendry made me drool again. <laughs> that's scattersy. We've got a scattersy. Yeah. yeah. He's a cutie. Yeah. Uh, you know, with it, it first listen or first read, um, my first impression was our plump little eunuch. Yeah, I thought yeah. Varys as well. I think Varys or Littlefinger, but. Likely since Yorin didn't recognize him, and Yorin has been to court a number of times and spoken to the small council, or he did recognize him, maybe, because he says he says to Arya that he won't tell her who the messenger was, but likely varies because he can assume a number of disguises. That's, that's um, the really interesting point. The way he says, don't mind who it was. Like, yeah. who's he protecting? That's a weird, a weird piece to be like, I'm telling you all this now. Let's leave out this little detail that you don't care about at all. Yeah, so either he didn't know or he was maybe protecting Arya from that identity or protecting the person. Hard to say, but Varys is definitely somebody who can make himself look like anyone. So it's a likely candidate. Yeah. Uh, motivation? Now we're speculating for sure. Do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> don't leave yes, us we'll we're not really going to novels after this well, yeah don't don't leave <laughs> listeners we're not actually yeah. going to go into spoiler mode but it's interesting that someone knew who gendry was wanted him out and safe as safe as possible on the wall so because it sounded like gendry had a pretty good gig going he was a good blacksmith a good apprentice he had been uh you know his his away had been paid nobody knew that he was robert's bastard but somebody wanted him out of the city da, da, da. yeah what's going cool. on there so um i kind of skipped over this but by the end of the chapter Arya is thoroughly miserable and missing her family a lot but especially missing john snow she actually dreams about winterfell which i don't know if we can give Arya any credit to having prophetic dreams but she does dream of winterfell so again maybe that stark child connection is there she misses john so much she said she'd rather didn't she say she'd rather go to winterfell first she'd rather go to the, of, wall, go to the wall before winterfell well yeah. she said she wishes that the, the wall came before winterfell so i don't, I don't know yeah, if she wants so she to go all the way up there and then back but yeah she, she wishes it would be natural natural to see john first yeah mm-hmm yeah. yeah, so I thought it was also really interesting to see, you know, what the wall needs and is supplied with from the south that they can't get up north. So yeah. stuff like, so stuff that um, Yorn is bringing up along with recruits is hides, bolts of cloth, bars of pig iron, which is actually a thing. It's not some weird germ thing. It's like um, it? intermediary ore for creating steel. Oh, cool. So um, maybe they couldn't afford real steel. They can only afford leftover pig iron. Well, a cage of. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, 
Professor Scott uh, on the fly because I didn't really research this too much, but steel has to be created from ore, and it's it, the steel is created by the way you process it. So it's possible that um, that pig iron can be fashioned into steel. Oh yeah, I think that is the point. But can they just buy like steel? Oh, you're saying yeah, buy buy already fashioned steel, yeah. But don't uh, forget, they got Donald Noy up there. He's better than any any uh, forger of steel uh, down in King's Landing, right? Heck yeah, he is. So he's also bringing up a cage of ravens, uh, books and paper and ink, a bale of sour leaf, which I think I've heard before. And Yorin recommends that Arya chew it to help with the pain of her switching. So I'm guessing it's some sort of marijuana, jars of oil. Yeah, sounds like some sort of, yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe like... Um, it seems mm. like the equivalent of chewing tobacco in terms of that guys it, just like pull it out and start chewing on it. Isn't that stuff. what Master Heddle yeah. chewed? The one that had the red teeth from the yeah. sea at yeah. the crossroads? It turned your yeah. spit red. But, but what helps it does with have pain? that effect on pain. Yeah, so it's, it's chewing like chewing tobacco? marijuana. Yeah, there you go. It's like chewing marijuana. <laughs> chewing weed. <laughs> um, yeah, chests of medicine and spices. So another, as you guys know, I'm obsessed with the wall. Another cool look as to, you know, how they stock it and run it. Yeah. Uh, I guess Yorin is just their, their fetching lad. I'm yeah, it appears too. that you know, for somehow they're able to get food and all of those things that they need up there somewhere. Uh, and so these are kind of just the extra things, like you said, that aren't available, I guess, up in the north. Mm-hmm. Well, the gift, that land that's just south of the wall that doesn't actually belong to the Stark lands, it, it belongs to the wall. There's like right. I didn't know if we could bring that up yet. Oh. I suppose it's not a big deal. It doesn't impact the story in any way. So. I thought it was yeah. known about. Doesn't like know. John ride through the gift? But I don't think we talk about it. I don't think they've I don't think they've really talked about it yet, but I don't think it's a big spoiler. It's yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's, you're right, I'm sorry. Yes, mop they us. Do if you see gift. right below the wall, there's a a piece of land called the gift. Um, and it's been given to the Night's Watch, like Brooke's talking about, in order to help sustain the Night's Watch. But I, I wonder yeah. I wonder, Brooke, now that you bring it up, we're way off track a little way off track a little bit, but do they have the men to, to be out there doing that? Is that part of what the stewards do, maybe? I know that they can can barely even man the wall, so it seems... I wonder how good they are at managing that land. Or are there people that live out on the gift who they kind of contract with? Oh, it could be. To, to harvest knows? for them? And, I don't know. I, so I bet it's a mix we're, of the two. We're 42 minutes into the cast, and I've already got two writing projects for Gurm to stack up <laughs> behind when he finishes this one. A, uh, <laughs> a, 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 a spin-off about the people that, that man the gift. And and from Matt in the first chapter in the from the prologue, a complete rewriting of the series. Take every single chapter and rewrite it from a different POV. From another Whoa. perspective, I've thought about what? that. Yeah, I've thought about that same thing. How cool would that be to get like version two of all the books? I can <laughs> smell Matt heading down the fan fiction path. <laughs> from here, I won't do it. I won't do it. <laughs> Do One, it and then link I us. I won't. I won't. <laughs> and part of it is just lack of motivation. <laughs> feed me. Don't make me feed myself. Feed me. Give me books to read. So uh, one thing I thought was interesting in the, in here, Brooke, was, uh, I don't know if you noted it, but uh, Arya drawing from the direwolf sigil, kind of like Danny does the blood of the dragon. 
kind of mm. draws strength from it. I won't cry. I won't cry. The dire wolf wouldn't show this pain or whatever. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, for sure. And she's she's done that a number of times too. Like uh, when she was uh, running from the uh, white cloaks or the the Lannister men after she escaped the keep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she's a tough little Stark. She's got this. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else in here that we want to uh, want to run through? So they talk about. I'm I'm wondering about the Night's Watch's confidence in their ability to reform dangerous criminals. I know. Like oh there was three three of the guys who they're packing up to the wall. Yorn was so I don't know if we have, or he's afraid of them or so wary of them that he actually put them in chains and carted them up to the wall because he didn't trust them or he was afraid of them or he thought they were so dangerous. Like, is that really the type of people you want to take to the wall? Like, do they really think they can turn these guys around and turn them into disciplined members of the Night's Watch? Like, that's kind of scary to me. I think it shows just what position they're in right now. Are they that desperate? Yeah, I think that's what it's meant to show. Yeah. Also, Arya's fight with Lamy and Hot Pie, I guess more just Hot Pie, it kind of reminded me of Jon's early scuffles with the other Night's Watch recruits. Like the first time that he was <laughs> up in the yard fighting and he was just trashing on all of them. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of that. That parallel was there. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh... Just so far above Hot Pie, she's just kicking his butt. I, I love Gurm's descent into the mind of a 12-year-old boy. It was just hilarious to read the kicking him to death in the balls, the uh-huh. just the the taunt lumpy head. Are you kidding me? That's totally something a twelve year old would come up with. Lumpy head. Yeah. Oh, well, and the man. reason I was I was saying that uh, you know allegedly kicked the kid to death or whatever. I wonder if if Hot Pie, you know, he's I would imagine he comes from a pretty rough upbringing, uh, and I wonder if this is kind of just his natural instinct kicking in of having to like. You know how birds, like they, some birds for or lizards or insects or whatever, they can like or fish even puff themselves up to make them look more intimidating to potential predators. I wonder if that's Hot Pie's way of dealing with people, and you know that's he kind of had to puff himself up to um, protect himself, and yeah. now he's just kind of doing it on instinct. I totally uh, took it that. But way. But why would he have to do it to this little kid? I I don't know. But I totally um, took it that way. Uh, Yorin mentions to Arya, I think, the the type of people that are here, and he even comments that a couple of them are lads from the street that he promised a better life to. I think Hot Pie is mm-hmm. just that guy. He he, and, and probably Lamy too. They're just they're just kids. They they didn't do anything wrong. They're not not too wrong anyway. Actually, I think Lamy well, did. He stole he stole yeah, I think, or something. But I think that actually, and this might be boring to discuss, but I think George actually made a mistake because he does say that Yorin had taken these kids from the streets by persuading them with promises of food and shoes. But then while we're exploring Lamy and Hot Pie, we find out that Lamy had been caught for thieving and that Hot Pie had killed this kid. So mm, maybe well, they were being held somewhere. Remember, there's 30 people, so it might just be somebody he hasn't mentioned yet. But Yeah, uh, sure. But I actually think Hot Pie didn't kill anyone. I think he's lying, like Matt's talking about. Because because I don't I don't buy that account of kicking a kid to death in the balls. I don't think that's what would happen, and it just doesn't sound. <laughs> He's right. just got you a guys, really good imagination. Yeah. A really good imagination. I'm gonna yeah. give this one to you guys. Yeah. 
Also, uh, note about pronunciation. I always, I always, with an English accent, went with Ari. Oh, yeah. But I have Harry no Potter. idea. You well, said Ari, and I was like, oh. If you pronounce it Arya, then it would be Ari, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it just never <laughs> dawned on me. Ari. Ari. Entire time. Ari. 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 <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, Sansa 1. Matt. Okay. So Sansa... Uh, just like Arya and Cresson before her, is watching the Red Comet when Ser Ares Oakheart of the King's Guard comes to fetch her. And why is he fetching her? Well, it's Joffrey's 13th birthday, called Name Day in the world of Westeros, and a tourney is being held in his honor. Yay! Oakheart uh, proves to be kind of the more cordial of the King's Guard and of the other charming personalities in King's Landing, and among other things, comments on the meaning of the comet, saying it's a good omen for Joffrey. And he also comments on her choice of attire, which features long sleeves to hide the bruises inflicted by Oakheart's brothers in the King's Guard at Joffrey's command. So the tourney turns out to be kind of a bleak affair, nothing like the one held in her father's honor. Attendance is pitiful, due mostly to the fact that a war is going on, and the field of combatants is rather shallow. So Sansa dutifully plays the part of the lady, uh, joining Joffrey in his courtside seats, accompanied by his siblings. We've got the sassy Marcella and the lovable and plump Tommen, and the both sassy and lovable Sander Clegane, who remarks on the low quality of this particular joust. So his words kind of prove correct as the jousting begins in a rather anticlimactic fashion. Uh, the first item of note occurs when one Serdantos Hollard, the only surviving member of his house, cannot even get on his horse because of his extreme uh, incuppedness. He's plastered. He's just drunk out of his mind. He's in his cups. Been there. So, yeah, <laughs> me too. Lots. Uh, Joffrey, who can't abide fools, puts his vivid imagination to work, ordering his Kingsguard to drown Hollard in a cask of wine. And Santha, in this moment of over-the-top courage that surprises even herself, intervenes, lying to Joffrey in claiming that it's bad luck to kill someone on your birthday. That's something that I know from experience, having killed a number of people on my own birthday, <laughs> which is not good luck. Murder confession number uh, three from Matt. <laughs> uh, she's almost equally surprised to find that the hound jumps to her aid seconding her notion um, to Joff and claiming that what a man sows on his name day he reaps throughout the year so being the level-headed and even-tempered child that he is Joffrey backs off saying he'll just kill Dantos the next day uh, Sansa who at this point can't even believe what she's saying points out how comical Dantos is and suggests that Joff take him on as a fool or court jester. A notion that would mean a lifetime of humiliation for Hollard, but uh, would likely save his life. Joffrey thinks it's a great idea and agrees, and now he's got a new fool. So after this, Joffrey gets a little bored and he calls off the rest of the tourney, even allowing his cute little brother Tommen, Tommy Tom, to suit up and ride against the wooden quintain um, it's a cute little scene where, uh, you know, it's one of those spinny things that you practice jousting on. Tommen hits the 
hits the Quintain, but of course rotates around and hits him in the back of the head as he rides past. And you just get this nice little uh, look at Tom. And he, he even shows this this little remarkable courage for such a little boy. He pops up ready to try again. You know, it reminded me of what Papa Thack used to always say. If both your legs aren't broken, you can get up and skate off the ice yourself. So. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> I thought my dad was strict. Damn. <laughs> so soon after. crawl off of that ice? <laughs> More than I should have. Yeah, he said it in a very loving way. <laughs> uh, soon after, who makes a grand appearance into the Red Keep but House Lannister's very own halfman, Tyrion, making quite the entrance in the company of his mountain clansmen and sellswords and the like. So Marcella and Tommen, who and they're kind of his double niece and nephew, right, are delighted to see him. Joff, not so much. Uh, Sansa greets Tyrion with kind of a cool courtesy, well aware of the Lannister, Lannister Stark enmity and what had happened between Tyrion and her mother at the crossroads. So the chapter ends with Sansa and Tyrion exchanging eh, polite, if not a little awkward, pleasantries, and with Tyrion, however, assuring Sansa he means her no harm. Sansa seems to want to believe him, but reminds herself that she must never again Trust Lannister. Okay, end of chapter. So what kind of situation do we find Sansa in? Sometimes we, we think that she's got it easiest of all of them so far, but I'm not completely convinced. What do you guys think? Oh, yeah, I think that the prescribed beatings mean that she's got it not so good, <laughs> despite the fact that she can dress up and do her makeup and attend tourneys. <laughs> Being being the the punching bag for Joffrey's wrath, not so great. Like just like white knuckling through her entire life, probably pretty stressful. Oh yeah, so... I think it's terrible. Uh, I I don't think we I, I don't think I ever said that she had it easiest. Rob's definitely I think I said easiest that. at this point, but <laughs> yeah. I, no, I... and I'm not saying any of you guys did, but uh, it seems like in commentaries it comes up that you know why Sansa whining? Why she did it? She's got it so easy. Like, this is severe domestic abuse, guys. Like, this is really bad. Oh, yeah. And there's, like, no there's no hotline she can call or, you know, like, way to get out of this. Like, she's stuck. Stuck. Like, no way out of it. And it's yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. It's pretty bleak. And the physical abuse is bad. But the mental abuse is... Uh, I don't mean to diminish physical violence. But the mental abuse is, is maybe even worse. Right? I mean, just... Right. Just on, like I think Brooke said, a white knuckling the whole time. Like white knuckling, she's just that was on very well said. Though. Edge all the time, right? And just try. Never knows to... when she's going to get hit. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, no, I definitely did say at one point that I would love her life, but I take it back. Take it back. Well, also, her uh, life with the internet. Despite themselves, the Lannisters seem to have picked, uh, maybe picked a winner in Oakheart, right? Guy seems okay. <laughs> No, I, would I say, mean, at, I would at, at least he protested before he hit Sansa. Yeah, right. he's a great example of Sandor's distaste for knighthood in that he he looks good while being a jerk. And that's what Sandor hates. Mm. I, I made your eye roll when he was talking about the comet meaning a good omen for Joffrey and stuff. I was like, oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's he does seem like he's he's a fairly nice guy though. He seems like 
he seems like a guy who's kind of living in Sansa's old world. Yes. Uh, yeah, I agree. Just the guy version of it. I guess he just he seems he doesn't he definitely seems doesn't like seem like a, a Marin Trant or something. Yeah, he yeah. seems like more of a knight and more of a chivalrous kind of gentlemanly guy, rather than mm-hmm. you know these thugs that I think the Lannisters have stumbled into for yeah, the most part. I would agree. The comet bit was funny though, and the, and the part where. Sansa's like, well, he likes to gossip as long as he knows no one can hear him of importance. (laughs) Uh Oh, he's just a little gossip. He's a cheeky little little Kingsguard. Cheeky or cheeky? Cheeky. Cheeky. So, uh, yeah, the comet bit got me too because we've had, had, what, like three or four looks at this thing and everyone's got a different explanation. It's been mentioned in every chapter. Yeah. Yeah. It's been called the, the Red Sword. The uh, Joffrey King Joffrey's comment, the Slayer of the Seasons, Dra- uh, was Dragon's what... Tale. Yeah. yeah. Dragons. Oh, yeah. I, I, I spoiled a little bit for Brand's upcoming chapter, but the Slayer of Seasons coming up That's in right. a future chapter, and uh, and also Danny saw it right uh, as well. And Osha says that it heralds dragons. I think before Old Nan but... says that. Oh, Old Nan says it. Sorry. So yeah, yeah. Just kind of everybody. I I, I just is Germ just messing with us. Like, is is this just a prime example yes. of, you can't trust what anybody says in this world? They, they're all guessing. He's definitely setting I... us up for, like, like maybe one of these comet names is accurate, but yeah. which one? Yeah. I'm going to go right. it's with... It's definitely a mystery right now. Yeah, uh... that it heralds dragons since we first saw it when the dragons were hatched. I would say that's pretty accurate. And Old Nan said it, and Old Nan is pretty reliable. Yeah, I, I'm going yeah. with that too, but I'm not convinced. Definitely not <laughs> Joffrey's comment. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did uh, chuckle a little bit that no one showed up to Joffrey's tourney. Yes, <laughs> it's great. No one's there. And it's like empty. Didn't George do a great job? I don't know how he did it, but it, it's like he altered his writing style to make this tourney seem more boring. Even the action parts... You're just like this is boring, even the, even the parts right. where where they were good bouts. You're like this is boring, Ugh. like and well, that other yeah, tourney no, I remember being on the edge of my he, seat. I'm not sure they altered his writing style, but we did see both tourneys through Sansa's eyes. In the first one, she was like love drunk mm-hmm. and yeah. totally romanticizing the whole thing, and this one she's she like, call... sorry, go ahead. They said she calls it the most magical days of her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, contrasting with what you said, quick pat on the bat for for Scad, by the way. I think I used almost those exact same words when we reviewed that chapter in Game of Thrones. What words? I think I said like it, I went off about. Remember, imagine the best day of your life. Oh, that's right. Remember, and I'm like, this is the best day of her life. And then we got all existential because yeah. you couldn't remember a good day. <laughs> <laughs> then we were like, Scad. No, pass that, pass children. that, pass that You're part. Married. In fact, never mention that again. <laughs> we'll just hope Eowyn never listens this far into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Or or Pippin and Pippin or Mary. <clears throat> yeah. All right. How about how about the Hound coming to Sansa's rescue again? It's a really cool relationship that's developing between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And also maybe. Well, I, up to up for interpretation. Maybe coming to Tyrion's rescue a little bit at the end too. He, the, at the very end of yes. the chapter, he warns him to guard his tongue. But I couldn't tell whether he was just being menacing, 
or whether he was actually being well-meaning, like, hey, I know you're short, but you're going to be a head shorter if you keep this up, you know? I couldn't tell. Yeah, that's... It reminded me exactly of the passage that we read, and I think we talked about the same thing clear back at the beginning of where they kind of mentioned the same thing in passing at Winterfell. If you remember when uh, Tyrion was slapping Joff around. Yeah. And he kind of walks by and he says, like, don't do that again or something I don't remember. And it's kind of like, well, was he, like, threatening him or was he just saying, this kid's crazy and he will kill you, so be careful. Yeah. It's been kind of sad that that Sandor and Tyrion are friends. They'd be like the kind of people who would be like, you guys got to meet each other. You should hang out. You totally get along. <laughs> <laughs> because Sandor Cossain kind of reminds me of Bronn in some ways. Sure. Uh, You'd be like the Tevya of A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> What's Tevya? Oh my god. Tevya, really? Fiddle on the yeah. roof? If I were a rich man, yabba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-dibba-
So we open with Tyrion bullying his way into a small council meeting in King's Landing. Everyone is surprised to see him, but none more than his sister, who greets the letter Tyrion carries from Lord Tywin, announcing Tyrion's appointment to the Hand of the King with shock and rage. Um, I actually had a little bit of pity for Cersei here, because she argues that the King appoints the Hand, a.k.a. Cersei appoints the hand, and that her father so blatantly and casually dismisses her command for him to return to King's Landing, it, it must be infuriating. And that he sends Tyrion to bring Joffrey to heal because Cersei can't, more so. Anyways, the council leave Tyrion and Cersei alone at Tyrion's bidding. We actually get a really great catch-up on what's going on in the Rotten Keep from Cersei breaking it all down for Tyrion. Very smooth, Gurm. I liked it. We get the 411 on Ned being killed by Joffrey's rash behavior, Robert being helped along to his death, Sir Barristan getting away, Littlefinger arranging for Janos Slit to join nobility in the council. And then when Tyrion broaches the topic of who killed Jon Arryn, he springs on Cersei that he knew about her and Jaime being lovers all along. <laughs> and that instigates the single best page in this entire series in which Tyrion insults Cersei in three lines and she slaps him three times. Did you guys read this? It was like, Tyrion says something cutting. Cersei slaps him. Tyrion responds with something more cutting. Cersei slaps him. It's amazing. I'm going to take a screenshot and post it in the references because it is a literary masterpiece. So anyways, to settle in, Tyrion leaves the lodging and management of his clansmen to Bronn and heads out into the city to take stock of the current state of King's Landing. On his way out of the keep gates to the city, he commands that the Stark heads be taken down from the parapets, even though Joffrey wanted them up there until Rob Stark's, Renly's, and Stannis' heads could be spiked beside them. And as he rides through the city, he makes note of how grim things have become since he left with supplies not getting in from the south or the west because of Renly's campaign. So dudes are even selling roasted rats on sticks, which sounds delicious. He also learns that to pay for fortifications to the city's walls and additional armament, Littlefinger has started taxing people coming into the city, including refugees. Of course, his ride through the city was but a ruse. He was actually on his way to visit Shay, who he holed up in a tavern, the Broken Anvil, um, on his way into the into the into the city and left her with Chella. And when he goes to find her again, who should he find but Varys sitting there having a glass of beer with Shay? They're all laughing and joking, and they're best friends. And Tyrion and and Varys have this great little like side eye conversation where Tyrion learns that. Varys knew about Shay the second that they stepped through the gates to King's Landing. And um, that, you know, nothing gets by Varys. And, and now Varys has this information in his grasp. Which I find it very interesting that, that Varys revealed himself to Tyrion. Like, because he could have kept it a secret. He could have used Shay's existence and Tyrion's um, opposition to his father's commands as as leverage in the future but he didn't and also Varys moved really quick i mean 
Varys and, and Littlefinger and the rest of the council were dismissed by Tyrion. Tyrion had that conversation with Cersei. Tyrion went out into the city, rode almost directly to the tavern, and there was Varys. Like, secret tunnel quick, I think. So uh, the chapter ends with uh, Tyrion getting a little shay which is, like, a pretty common way for a Tyrion chapter to end. Yeah. <laughs> Tyrion just motorboating into Shay's young breasts. And, uh, yeah, that's it. He's now handed the king. So I wonder if that wasn't a bit of a power sh- uh, a power move, Brooke, on Varys trying to say, look, Tyrion, I do know this about you, and I know it already, so watch yourself through all of this. Like, if he's trying to establish that early on. Yeah, I felt like he showed a really big hand, though. Right. Hmm. It was rather early. <laughs> it's really quick. But um, yeah, um, one common theme throughout this chapter was Tyrion trying to exert his authority and being and using his clansmen and Bronn as protection as threats. But then Tyrion also being self-effacing and joking about being little that he takes very little effort. He's not a big deal. <laughs> like he, mm-hmm. he has a, a lot of good stature jokes stacked up to use so like he's i don't know if he's being masterful at at establishing his dominance within the council and as the hand or if he's actually damaging any leeway he's made actually he's doing a great job at it uh he kind of comes at cersei at least kind of with this two-pronged attack the first one is is dad's authority. Look, I've got a letter from dad. But, you know, that could be circumvented to a degree, and Cersei could try to undermine that. So then he hits her with the second way of exercising authority of her, and that's dropping his own knowledge bomb that he knows about uh, Jamie and Cersei, and he can tell dad about it or whatever he wants to do. Um, and to me, that is like... In those few those few pages, he established his dominance over Cersei, um, and we can talk more about that if we want to. But I thought he did a rather good job at it. And the self-effacing stuff, I think that's just to kind of make them feel a little off kilter. The other members of the council, like they're just confused, they don't know how to act, and so that doesn't keep them in the frame of mind they need to be in because they can't figure Tyrion out. Mm, yeah. Right. I- Two things about that, uh, I love those points, Matt. Uh, I think there's a third thing that he does there at the very end. He tells Cersei that he's on her side, right? So he he said uses the dad's authority thing. He then insults her and, and uh, you know, kind of seizes control. And then he says, but relax. I'm here for you. Like, I'm, I'm going to help, right? And he doesn't mean it, of course. But he tells her that. <laughs> He gives her exactly what she wants, yeah. which is to feel like she's in power. Yes. And exactly. I thought that was hilarious where Cersei's like, okay, um, I guess you can be hand, but she essentially says, you have to run everything by me first. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Tyrion's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. George actually there... writes it as Tyrion is like, yes, I agree. He lied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it, can you imagine Tyrion being like, is it really going to be this easy? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll run everything by you. Like, <laughs> yeah, he gives her, that's, that's a very good point, Scott. He, the third thing that he does is he gives her exactly what she wants. And, uh, which is the idea that she's still running the show, even though at this point, 
Tywin is completely running this kingdom. Like anytime Cersei's like, no, Joffrey is supposed to decide that. He's the king. Tyrion's just like, okay, you tell dad that. And yeah. <laughs> Cersei's like, oh, okay, I guess I, okay. <laughs> uh, a lot happened in that, and you, you, uh, you said it ably, Brooke, about the, the catch-up. I mean, forget our, our POV arc that if you haven't listened to yet, go back and listen. Or don't, just read this chapter because he catches you up on like all the major storylines anyway in this, in this one chapter, right? With Tyrion mm. and Cersei catching up. It's, it's really well done. Um, one, one thing that she, she says that it was a, uh, something like it was a close thing if, if Sansa hadn't come to me and told, her, her, told us her father's plans, it might not have gone our way. And uh, that flies in the face of something I had supposed when we reviewed that chapter in Game of Thrones, which is I think they were already moving on all that information anyway, uh, syndicates that that wasn't the case, that uh, Sansa actually played an active part in in that whole string of events happening the way it did. Yeah, at least in the the timeline, maybe. Uh, it seems to me that, like, yeah, like you said, they were going to move on Eddard anyways, but this might have... Uh, expedited things and helped them to act more quickly. Yeah. Spurred them to action. She also mm. uses a great phrase during that same conversation where where Tyrion, uh, Tyrion in no way feigning surprise uh, that Sansa would betray her family like that, Cersei descri- uh, explains it away by, say- by saying she was wet with love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was icky, right? <laughs> yeah, because you know what Cersei really means. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Sansa, Sansa hasn't even had her first blood moon. Come on, man. But uh, yeah, that was pretty pretty descriptive, but accurate. She was pretty riled yes. up. Very, yeah. Mm-hmm. Over Joffrey, yeah, for sure. yeah. forgiving yeah. for many things in a very believer way. Right? Yes. Uh, one one thing also I found interesting was as Tyrion's walking uh, or riding through the town and talking to uh, part of the household guard, it sounds like Cersei's actually a pretty capable city defender or commander. It sounds like you know she's got all the tradesmen working on little projects to help defend the city. She's ordered the wildfire to uh, to help defend the city. Sounds like she's. Uh, Looks like she's got a good commander head on her shoulders, maybe. What do you guys think of that? Uh, she's doing a good job of making the city safer, but she's not really addressing the uh, need to make this city an unhideous place to live. Oh, I didn't say she should rule. I said she could be a commander. <laughs> she's, uh, it does seem to be making the city safer. I think she's looking out for her own interests, and by shoring up those walls, it makes people harder to get to her. Oh, sure. I'm not talking about her motive. I'm just talking about her (laughs) ability to make good decisions to defend a city. Sounds, sounded good to me when I read it. Yeah, I would agree with that in terms of... a little paranoid. Paranoid? She knows Renly's got tens of thousands of troops coming her way, right? Yeah, but I feel like King's Landing's already pretty defensible. Anyways. They could throw peasants off the walls, I suppose. (laughs) That's right. They could. Uh, the riddle. Do you guys want to talk about the Varys's riddle? riddle? Yeah, I do want to talk about Varys's riddle. I liked it. So, what are you guys talking about? So, at the end, uh, Varys poses a riddle that uh, there's a sellsword uh, standing there, and he's looking at a king, 
um, what, a priest? Uh, and priest and a rich man. A rich man. Oh, yeah. And they each basically tell the sellsword to kill the other two. And he says who, who lives and who dies. And then he just walks out. He doesn't wait for anyone to answer the question. He just leaves. And, you know, when you ask a riddle, usually you want to see how confounded people are by trying to come up with the answer, right? So, like, he just doesn't... What's his motivation for asking it? I have a theory. I want to hear what you guys think, too. Uh, most of my work on the riddle went to picking it apart and interpreting it rather oh, than let's hear his that. motivation for, for why he... Uh why he told it but that's a very intriguing question that didn't even cross my mind um well i think i think i think it's kind of a the riddle is a microcosm of the game of thrones the whole thing i think that it talking about different men making different choices for different reasons and so the king i think each of the three guys represent different kind of motivations or reasons for doing things uh the king might represent like a mantle of authority um, visible power, someone doing something because it's there. Get ready, I'm going to say it. Duty to do it, uh, to land and country or government or whatever. The priest might represent morality or, you know, you're doing something because you feel it's the right thing to do. And the rich man might represent getting gain, uh, improving, you know, one's situation in worldly terms, um, getting ahead. So, uh, and then... I don't know that there's a right answer to the riddle. It's just pointing out that people do things for different reasons. And, and that's, a, that's a perfect setup. So I, I agree with all of that. And I think the reason Varys asks the riddle is because he knows that as soon as he walks away, people are going to pose answers to the riddle. And he wants Tyrion to see exactly who's he, who he has surrounding him. Because having sized up Shay and Chella he knows that they're going to pick the rich man. He knows that they're motivated by gain and money, and he wants Tyrion to see that. That's why I think he asks the riddle. I think that's a great point, Scott, and I think you're right, because later when Tyrion is doing Shay, he tells himself, don't get too excited. She's only moaning and enjoying this for the money. Yes. So he probably had Barry's question in the back of his mind. Good job, guys. Yeah. Anyway, I, I remember being very confused by that riddle the first time I read it, and that kind of hit me this time when I read it, so I wanted to share. Uh, we're we're over time. Uh, should we go to Bran? Yes. All right, Matt. Five, six, seven, eight. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you unexplored and the summer's gonna come you know it's gonna come summer's gonna come and boy you're gonna fly away so we find Bran hungry like the wolf yeah little Duran Duran there yeah <clears throat> I don't really like Duran Duran that much but that's just what I thought of so, dreaming of wolves often, he now finds himself kind of seated at his window, where he sounds like he's wont to find himself. He's often there. He's listening to the dire wolves howl, howl, and he can't help but think that they are speaking a language that he should be able to understand. He feels like he's almost to the point where he could actually understand what they're trying to say to him, and he feels like they're communicating with him, and he just can't quite get it, though. 
So, you know, everyone else in Winterfell seems irritated by the dire wolf's constant howling, uh, but Bran likes it. And he knows that the wolves seem to howl when they're grieving. So Summer, or so Bran heard that Summer was howling night and day after Bran's fall. And they did, the Shaggy Dog and Summer were also howling when word was brought of Eddard's death. So Bran's wondering, you know, what terrible thing has happened now that's causing them to howl like this. Uh, and then in this cute little moment of pure nine-year-old Bran, he's still sitting in his window and he begins to howl along with the wolves. Just, oh, and uh, Hayhead, one of his guards, tries to quiet him down and not work and he just keeps howling. Um, Hayhead eventually goes and grabs Maester Lewin. Lewin has just the kind of, same kind of luck quieting Bran down, but he's eventually able to have some semblance of a uh, conversation with him. And during this conversation, Bran brings up his wolf dreams, which are occurring more frequently. And in these dreams, Bran actually becomes a wolf, or at least he's dreaming of being a wolf. He runs as a wolf, he eats as a wolf, and he feels like a wolf. And these dreams seem to come regardless of any kind of remedial efforts on Lewin's part to try to help him go into a dreamless sleep where he wouldn't have dreams like this. And Lewin, who's constantly worried about Bran and being the practical guy that he is, uh, suggests that Bran spend more time with the other children, namely Rickon and Little and Big Walder. So two new little characters in Winterfell. Little and Big Walder are two Frey children who came to be fostered at Winterfell as part of Catelyn and old Weezer, Weasel Walder's agreement. Um, and the fun thing about Little and Big Walder is Little Walder is actually very big and bulky, and Big Walder's kind of more small and slight, and their names refer to their position in the line of secession. Uh, Big, Big Walder, despite being the smaller kid, is actually older than Little Walder, hence him being called Big Walder. 52 Anyways, days. 52 days older, yeah. Uh, Bran replies that he hates the Walders, blaming them for the wolves' banishment to the godswood after Shaggy Dog had attacked Little Walder. Bran, you know, defends Summer, saying that at least Summer didn't do anything. Lewin then reminds him that Summer once tore a man's throat out in the very room where they were standing. And, uh, you know, the, the, the wolves are getting bigger and they're turning into kind of these killing machines and they need to be reined in. So Bran is just frustrated uh, at this whole situation um, and probably frustrated at his overall place in life at not being able to do the things he wants to do. Um, claims that he would rather be a wolf so he could go where he wanted, find his sisters, fight alongside Rob, kill Jamie Lannister, and end the war. Then he just starts howling again. Lewin, and I, what I can imagine is just this huge sigh, turns around and walks out, and Bran eventually grows bored with his howling, and he then recalls, so we're going to go back in time a little bit, he recalls watching the other children play Lord of the Crossing. And Lord, of this Cro Lord of the Crossing is a game that the uh, phrase had made up, where one person stands on this log in the middle of a tiny body of water, it could be a pond or a little creek or something like that, and um, people try to come up and uh, you know, not to get too much into the particulars of the game, they try to become the Lord of the Crossing themselves by telling a series of lies and using brute force to remove the previous Lord of the Crossing from there. It's this big, long game that maybe we can talk about in our analysis. But um, 
where were we? So uh, we find out, among other things, that, of course, Bran couldn't play Lord of the Crossing, but he could watch. And he also remembers that how Shaggy Dog got himself and some in their current imprisonment in the Godswood. Uh, when Shaggy Dog bit Little Walder, what had happened was is Little Walder and Rickon were playing this game of Lord of the Crossing, and Shaggy Dog didn't like the aggressive nature by which Little Walder was playing with Rickon and came and attacked him. So that's why the dogs are holed up right now, or not the dogs, the direwolves. Uh, oddly enough, though, Rickon decides to spend more time with the phrase after that. He becomes fast friends with the phrase, and they spend all their time together, and this only serves to further alienate Bran. So Lewin later returns uh, with Osha and a sleeping draught, which is supposedly supposed to suppress Bran's wolf dreams and help him just get a good night's sleep. Uh, he gives him the draught, and before falling asleep, uh, Osha asks Bran if he's still having the wolf dreams and actually encourages him to try and not repress them, suggesting that perhaps the old gods are trying to tell him something. So end of chapter. Oh, Branny boy. Or um, Bran. Yeah. Branny it's... boy, the wolves, the wolves are calling. <laughs> oh, good. More theater. Very good. <laughs> so what do you what think about from. the that's wolves? That's not even theater, I don't think. Did you just make that up? Uh, well, because Dan if Danny you did. Boy is, Danny Boy is a song. Danny oh, Boy, okay. Danny Boy, the the pipes, the pipes are calling. I think it's a real song, guys. I'm, this isn't even musical theater. That's like a song, song. Oh, Danny boy, oh, Danny boy, I love you so. All right, just send us your demo. God damn it! <laughs> well, maybe it's it's Brooke and I that should be bad that we can't that we can't match wits with you. But, uh, I think you're being so, generous by calling it wits. <laughs> uh, I loved uh, Brand's just little little toot here. He just uh, we talked about it in this cast before, but Gurm's ability to write from the mind of these characters is really astounding to me. He can write from a nine year old's perspective or eight year old, um, putting himself in Brand's shoes and his predicament. Uh, why did you guys think the wolves were howling? Do you think that they are talking of something foreboding? I mean, they've already talked. We've already seen kind of the major things going on with the Starks. I really just think it's the separation. Bran was complaining that Summer wasn't allowed to sleep with him and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So my knee jerk is that it's just that they're separated. I didn't think that anything bigger was happening. Maybe because mm-hmm. winter is coming. Yeah, maybe just the whole kind of breakup of the Stark family in general, yeah. uh, and the direwolves too. For sure, and uh, maybe, maybe because Bran keeps on—I don't know—following them around mentally in his dreams. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, "This sucks! Stop it! Get out of our heads!" I don't know. Well, that, that's an interesting question. Are these just dreams, or is something really happening here beyond just dreaming? It seems very real. It does. Well, yeah, I mean, he talks about tasting the blood. Tasting the meat, yeah. Hearing very specific sounds and the feel of the moss underneath his feet. Yeah, I mean, there. so, uh, I don't know, personally, 
I don't dream with anywhere near that detail. I've heard that people do, yep. but I don't. You know, people have explained very, very specific dreams to me before. That sounded crude somehow. I didn't mean it to be. Um, yeah, it did sound <laughs> a little dirty. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like more. But that's just my impression um, of how I dream. OSHA offers an interesting perspective. Um, well, Brenda's too, in saying that the Starks have the wolf's blood. I don't know. It just seems that they might have inherent kind of dire wolf or magical qualities. Osha says that the wolves know truths the gray man has forgotten. Um, that maybe says to me that the Starks have access to greater knowledge if they have the wolf's blood. And maybe the tricky part now is just accessing that greater knowledge. Mm. Well, so we, we've heard we've heard the wolf blood before. And it didn't necessarily have anything to do with magical properties or anything. It just it just meant they were they were wild. They had a wildness to them, right? We've heard that in reference mm-hmm. to to Brandon and and uh, even Lyanna, I think as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, and I've talked about how I think kind of all the Stark kids now seem like they have it. But um, she might mean something more than, than that in this case. She's also she's a wildling, so I think she's just very open to these natural things of nature having experiences and and knowledge that can be shared and are valuable right and so she looks at the maester they're kind of an odd pair she and the maester right this maester is just discounting all of this stuff but she sees value in all those kinds of things and even if it's not even if she doesn't think it's a magical mystical thing i think she's saying don't shut these things out like they can tell you important things yeah, she's very much the yin to Lewin's yang in terms of balancing out practical and maybe we'd call it spiritual or supernatural or I don't know. Yeah, any of them. I think I was going to giggle a little bit about the phrase for a minute. So and if you want to get light, we can go to the is? phrase. How lame yeah, is that yeah. game? I just, I just love how everything that the phrase do or talk about <laughs> has to do with the line of secession. Like, it's all that their family's about. Like, when they're talking about their brothers and uncles and whoever, fathers or whatever, all they can talk about is where they are in the line of secession. It's, like, all that the phrase care about. Um, They don't have, like, any fun family stories. They just talk about who's first, who's second, who's third, who's going to die so someone can take their spot. It's just hilarious. And I love how Rickon's like, we have our own names at Winterfell. (laughs) It's like, the phrase are just... Like I've said it before for our Parks and Rec fans, the phrase are like the Jerry Gurgiches of winter of Westeros. They just picked on by everybody. Just, they totally are. Minus the lovable qualities that Jerry has. Uh, and yeah, but this. also Rickon's wrong. Rickon's named after a previous Stark. Bran is named after sure. a billion other Brandons. Like yeah. all their names are stolen. But anyway, <laughs> we have our own names. Uh, it's cute. Yeah, and that game really is pretty dumb. Oh my gosh. Again, just going back to their obsession with their position and everything, it's Lord of the Crossing is what the phrase do. They guard that crossing. And yeah. It's so self-absorbed. It's funny. It's hilarious. So I'll bring it back to Rickon like I always do. Just hearing about this kid breaks my heart every time. He, he, like, he literally has no guidance it's like Lewin is just spending all this time with Bran and, like, no time with Rickon to try to develop him in any way. 
And Lost cause. May, well, maybe. I don't want to give up on him, but... In Lewin's eyes. Yeah, perhaps in Lewin's eyes, yeah. Yeah, that, that may be true. It's a, it's just a misallocation of resources to try to help him now. But I, I thought in the dream, Shaggy Dog is is searching the whole time for, like, a way out. And, like, he, he, he just feels... He just feels very frustrated that he can't caged, find a way out yeah. and, and he's caged yeah. and and always just trying to find answers and, and he doesn't he can't figure it out he just knows that it, that he can't he can't make himself happy and, and content and i just think it's a perfect it's a perfect fit with rick and a, a metaphor for what he's going through like he's just this little ball of like uncertainty and, and anger because he has no answers and he doesn't even know what questions to ask like Shaggy Dog doesn't right. even know what the material the wall is made out of, really. Right? He can't he can't express what's really going on. He just knows he can't get out. Right? And I think Rickon's the same way. It just it kills me to read it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's unfortunate that Bran doesn't I guess um support and yeah, just support Rickon the same way that Summer supports Shaggy Dog or would appear to. Like Summer is all about family, his pack, his brothers and sisters. Brands, understandably, a little more insular and thinking more about the loss of the use of his legs and how he's being left out and all of that. So it's unfortunate that that doesn't project more onto Bran, that protectiveness, but meh. Someday. They're just kids. Yeah. All right, I'll shut up about Rickon. <laughs> Uh, just as we're on Comet Watch right now, it's appeared in every chapter so far, and it does appear in Bran's chapter as well. Uh, Osha says that it means blood and fire and nothing sweet, which, oddly enough, was the exact same thing that Varys reports the King's Landing small folk as saying it meant. Hmm. Um, the Septon at Winterfell says it's there to slay the season, so basically saying winter's coming, I think. Um, Lewin thinks it's just the wolves, uh, oh, he says that the wolves are howling at it because they think it's the moon. And Old Nan says it's dragons. It be dragons. But how dumb does Lewin come off? what the comet is. How dumb does Lewin come off in that? Oh, the, the wolves <sighs> think it's the moon. Yeah, they literally I, think that big red thing is the moon. <laughs> I, I think we, I, we talked about this before, but I think Lewin's just so wrapped up in the practical logistics of basically running Winterfell that he's like, I don't have time for this. It's a comet. Yeah, whatever. Uh, this, I, don't, I don't know. I've got to figure out, you know, how to get us through the winter. I, I don't have time for this. Yeah, maybe. So I don't think he puts his full thought into figuring this stuff out because he doesn't care. I just want him <laughs> to be more like a Wikipedia I think he's just stretched thin. I think Lewin's stretched thin. He just, yeah. Yeah, I think he could be more like a Crescent if he wasn't didn't have so much on his shoulders. Luckily, he's got Roderick Cassell back, which seems to be helping things, but even still, he's pretty much tasked with running all of Winterfell, getting turning Bran into an heir uh, that can run Winterfell, um, all of this stuff. That's big job. Mm-hmm. Yep. For a guy who's supposed to just be there to like support and consult <laughs> and be Wikipedia. All right. Uh, All anything right. else on Bran? Nope. No. All right. All right. Let's go ahead and get started with Davos After Dark. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Davos After Dark is our super spoilery session. So we're going to jump into all sorts of stuff that if, if you are not caught up with the last thing written in the last book of this series... Uh, don't listen unless you don't mind being spoiled, because they're going to come at you hard and fast. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little preview of the next the next episode. Uh, episode 19 uh, will release in two weeks. Uh, that'll be Arya 2, John 1, Catelyn 1, Tyrion 2, and Arya 3. So make sure you guys join us in two weeks for that episode. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and kick off Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Okay, well, let's start. I want to start with Varys and Shay and Tyrion. And we know that Shay betrays Tyrion in the end, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think Varys is sowing those seeds even this early? Like, is he really there just to play power games with Tyrion? Or is he actually kind of assessing Shay and seeing if she can be bought? I tend to think the latter, that he's trying to figure it out. We know that at least what he tells Illyrio in kind of the depths of of the Red Keep that one time, what they discuss is that Varys' kind of main job is to sow discontent among the current rulers so as to eventually kind of pave the way for Targaryens returning. Um, and so is this just his way of doing it? He knows that Tyrion's now been placed in a position of power, and so he's trying to get a feel for ways he can exploit Tyrion a little bit. A new piece to mold? Yeah. Or to figure out, at least. I think Varys, if anything, is very well prepared, and he likes to be prepared, and this is his way of just kind of getting a lay of Tyrion's land and seeing what buttons he can push. And he certainly found the right one. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was going to bring this up during the regular episode, but it's it's interesting how put together and just in control Tyrion was with Cersei, with the rest of the small council and everything. But when he's with Shay, he just completely falls apart, right? And yeah. He is almost not the same it's it's interesting so that's definitely the button to push with Tyrion uh, not spoilery but I loved how much um Marcella and Tommen really liked Tyrion like sincerely love him oh, yeah that yeah. was that was really refreshing and nice to see is that why you called them simple <laughs> that's mean <laughs> well they just don't seem to be that like conniving or manipulative or like standard Lannister qualities they seem like nice kids which could just mean that they're simple. Children have an ability often to get to the essence of a person and recognize that, and that maybe is an indicator that Tyrion's not all that bad a guy. Do they? I don't know. <laughs> I think you're talking about dogs. <laughs> yes. Golden Retrievers, maybe. Anyways, we're doing spoiler stuff. <laughs> can talk about child psychology later maybe but <laughs> uh, i'm sorry i brought it up no no i'm on rotten ice <laughs> uh, <clears throat> how about so uh i thought we've talked a bunch of times on here uh part of part of matt's team john theory uh which we won't go into again but uh a big part of that theory is mormont's raven and uh when the white uh raven shows up uh, for uh, for Maester Cressen to announce the end of summer, uh, it can speak several words, I think is the term he uses, several. Um, and he notes how clever that bird is for being able to do that. So I just want to throw out there, Mormont's Raven, he knows really? way more words than that. So he's like super clever or being warged by someone. 
Just saying. Yeah, but no, and that no. Someone is Brendan Rivers. So uh, take the sauce. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love that there are white ravens. So great. I don't remember them being like brought into play in any of the other books. Do they ever come back? Do they ever have to send other important messages? I feel like isn't it a, a white raven that shows up? Their whole point is to signify the change of the season, right? Right, but they don't just keep them around for ten years, sitting there getting fat until they have to send them out. They must send them out for other messages. Yeah, and he, yeah. Crescent says they send them out for important messages. It's not just the change of seasons. Mm. Um, but I, isn't isn't there a White Raven involved at the death of uh, of Kevin Lannister? They're in the oh. rookery, aren't they? And doesn't a bird show up? And it's a maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe, but they sound beautiful. Yeah, they do. It's hard to it's hard to picture like the the idea of a raven just that dark. So it's hard to even picture one. Well, I don't. Do you guys get ravens down in Utah? Uh, they have them at the zoo. We get ravens in the mountains in the Rockies. I guess you guys have mountains, Wabash, right? That are just huge. They are like cows in bird form. And they are like haunting. And they'll just be at the side of the road watching you drive by. Like these high passes. And I want one for a pet really, really bad. But I don't think you're able to understand the the weight and size of these birds until you've been like very close to one. So I don't know, go to the zoo, check it out. <laughs> yeah, no, ours are, <laughs> the ones in the zoo that I think there are two of them and they're in a tiny cage, poor things. And uh, this is in the Salt Lake zoo, obviously Hogle zoo shout out. Uh, but uh, they're not nearly that big. So now I'm very intrigued. Uh, I just have to throw out anytime I hear the word Raven, I always think of the uh, the poem, The Raven, uh, read mm-hmm. by Christopher Walken. Uh, <laughs> we should link to that. Okay. But you guys should check it out. It's pretty awesome. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Sounds good. Uh, okay. You want to go with the Gendry one? Sure. So, I mean, we hinted to it in the episode, so we should talk about it. Uh, you're assuming it's Varys. You said, why would Varys do it? Uh, Brooke thought maybe it might be Littlefinger. Um, it is Varys. He oh, admits to it later. He does? Yeah. Oh, yep. nice. I didn't remember that. Does he say it's, why? It's almost passing. No, not really. He just says that he sent Gendry. So the question is, why? Why would he send Gendry up there? Is he trying to protect him? Is he trying to get him out of the way? Thinking that he might somehow be a serious contender for the throne or a danger if he stays in King's Landing? Um, I think that's the interesting question is, why is he sending Gendry away? Is he putting him in his back pocket maybe? Is he think maybe he'll be kind of just out of the way at the wall, nothing's going to happen to him up there, and if he needs him, he knows where to find him? Yeah, and how did he persuade Gendry to go in the first place? Well, right, like, like, because Gen- like Gendry has the option of staying in King's Landing, his home that he's known all of his life, has a good job, knows what he's doing, or, you know, go up to the Wall, never marry, never have children, become a member of the Night's Wash. What made him go up? Did someone tell him? Yeah, about his what, origin. His apprentice, apprenticeer, what, what the hell, his master, whatever they call them, said he wasn't welcome anymore. Oh, him out. So, um, he had nowhere to go. Yeah, and. 
my guess which is, might have been done it was probably done at the behest of Vince. yes probably done by the same person but i, I can as feel to like you had no other about, option as your question about why i can only say money uh because that's the answer to 99 out of 100 questions but if it's Varys, <laughs> uh he's not usually doesn't seem to be that driven by money so yeah i mean he he mostly wants baratheons out of the way i think in the end game so maybe he just wants the piece as far away as it can get but maybe in a place where if he feels like using a Baratheon would be to his advantage, he knows kind of where to find him. Yeah, maybe. Because we know that the situation up in up at the wall is not good, and that's not where you'd send someone if you want them to be safe. <laughs> There's undead coming. Um, but Varys doesn't know that. Or maybe, I don't know, if he's got uh, little birds up there that far. Has he got little birds up there that far that he knows... Uh, the danger or the predicament that the Night's Watch is in. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can't figure out quite his motivation for sending him up to the wall. If he didn't want him around, why didn't he just kill him? You know? Why is he keeping him alive? Yeah, good point. But we, we're, we're kind of collecting these, these all these little Baratheon bastards, and mm-hmm. I don't know what their end game is going to be. You've got Maya, uh, you've got Edric, and you've got Gendry, and they've kind of almost disappeared from the later narrative. It'll be interesting to see how they reappear and what part they play. Yeah. Yeah, I'm super interested in Gendry. I love him. I want him to play a huge part. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Edric is interesting. He escapes across the Narrow Sea, right? With, um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what, what comes of him, too. But none of them are, none of them are, none of them are legitimized. Yep. So it would take no, but an I... act of some king to, to do that. I wonder if they have some magical power, though. Sort of like in Lord of the Rings, a ring bearer can go to the Undying Lands. Maybe the offspring of someone who has sat the Iron Throne has some value, like a spell or mm, King's oh, well, Blood. King's Blood, yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, interesting. Possible. Oh, another essay. <laughs> Yeah, um, that all gets, ugh, all that stuff gets really dicey to me. Like, I, I, when I was reading through the histories of uh, a song, A World of Ice and Fire, and I'm reading about all the Targaryens and how they're marrying each other and marrying others and keep it pure, and we're all, we're going all the way down to, like, the fifth uncle and the, you know, they married some, like, what's really pure about the blood by now? I think <laughs> the same thing about the Starks. It's like they're they're marrying... They're, and 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 the the warging and all the powers that they supposedly have, right? Like they're they're marrying in and out of the family all the time. Like any pure, actual pure blood would be you'd be down to like, you know, one five hundred and twelfth or something by then. Like, I mean, nothing's pure anymore, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe the pure blood isn't completely required. I don't know. Yeah. I think we've said this before. We're no Gregor Mendels, so. Uh, I am Gregor Mendel. <laughs> uh, this is my pseudonym. I, I feel like it's it's there's a, a magic component like with the Targaryens and the dragon blood. That'd be cool. I'd love that. I've never seen anything of the Baratheons that indicates that they're magic. Other than other than I guess Stannis Stannis gives himself to Melisander and produces a shadow baby, right? That is magic, I guess. Mm. Unless it's a ruse of hers and she doesn't need him at all. Yeah. Well, to speak of your topic, Matt, like 
why Melisandre was Stannis in the first place, because he has a, legit, a legitimate claim to the throne. Yeah, what would bring this woman from clear from a shy, who's obviously got these supernatural powers, bring her across, you know, the narrow sea and everything, to support a guy who has not a lot of power and not a lot of belief structure in what she believes in, and frankly, the, not much potential to believe in what she's preaching, uh, judging just by his character. What, like, what is she doing with him? I don't quite get it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird marriage. Uh, it almost lends to the credence of him being who she thinks he is, because otherwise, why should she pick him? He's got no. Yeah, he's got no charisma, like Brooke said. He doesn't have a lot of followers or a powerful army. Like, if it were a ruse, why would she pick him? She'd pick somebody mm-hmm. else. You know, it almost it's almost like, yeah, she really does believe in him. Here's an idea I had, and send this crash into the ground. What if, so he lives on Dragonstone, right? And yeah. maybe Dragon, isn't Dragonstone kind of rumored to have, like, magical qualities? I know it was constructed, they say, by magic and things like that. Maybe she saw, like, Dragonstone in her fires, and so she came to Dragonstone, and she saw that Stannis was in charge of Dragonstone, so she's like... She didn't maybe ask she's, any follow-up questions? <laughs> she's, maybe she thinks, oh, so he's running Dragonstone, so he must be... <laughs> she doesn't have a perfect track record in interpreting her own visions, right? No. They're very tainted by what she kind of wants them to be or other factors. And so maybe this is her just kind of getting it a little wrong. Well, but uh, well, very, she's certainly very wrong. In it. Very, very wrong. I mean, so the part where she lights the sword on fire for him, like the regular sword and just lights it on fire. Mm-hmm. You're like, she has to know this isn't how the prophecy goes. Right. Like, it was way tougher for the original Azor Ahai. He had to, like, build the sword himself and, like, kill a lion and like do all these other things and then eventually, eventually bury, kill his wife kill it, yeah buried in his wife's heart like it was it was a way bigger trial and test for this guy you're just going to pretend and light his sword on fire like that she's got it like she's actively she's like actively misleading people it seems i don't know she is wrong a lot with her fire i mean not wrong uh slightly off at least with her fire misinterprets yeah, yeah. and so, so I, I think it's I think it's a reasonable theory, but God, that sword thing just seems it seems like right. so off. Or is she just using Stannis for a greater purpose? But then the question again remains: Why did she choose Stannis yeah. as that vessel? He he would seem like the exact opposite of someone she would choose. It'd be really interesting to see how that turns out. Yeah. All right. Well, we've uh, we've been going for uh, nearly two hours. All right, thanks for joining us tonight, guys. This is Brooke signing off saying, don't pay to see Kevin Smith live. (laughs) Okay, this is Matt just reminding you that hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. Oh, I have nothing. Just have that be your sign-off quote. I have nothing. I have nothing. I, I I I I have let down... Uh, my people, I have let down the world. I'm signing off.
do a Fleetwood Mac lyric. No, that was it. That was that was my sign off. Okay. All right, you can go your own way. Good night. <laughs> Good night, guys. Night. <laughs> In touch with the crowd.